And I'd like to ask you to open a Bible to the Gospel of John. In these weeks around Easter, we are looking at the resurrection appearances of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, but God raised him from the dead. And so this week we're in John 20, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 24. If you're using the Bible that's there in the, in the pew, this is on page 1,075. Last week we saw Jesus bring peace to the disciples gathered in a locked room, trapped by their own fear. He returns a week later and we find out that Thomas, one of the 12 disciples, wasn't with Jesus before this. And so listen as I read the Gospel of John, chapter 20, beginning at verse 24. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let me pray that God would apply his word to our lives. Father in heaven, we give you praise for making known to us the truth of your gospel for proclaiming to us that our hope is found in Jesus Christ alone. Father in heaven, as we have read your word and we now have it applied to our lives through the preaching of the word, Lord, change our hearts, that we would be humble enough to hear, that we would be willing to, to trust. Lord, for those filled today with doubt or with questions, Lord, grant them the faith to believe. For those of us who, who consider ourselves followers of Jesus, give us a boldness, a confidence in the love of Jesus, our Savior. Father in heaven, we come praying in Jesus' name, amen. I fear the adjectives they'd attach to my name. Here in this passage, we have Thomas, who through the history of the church has been known as Doubting Thomas. Now, I know the kind of adjectives I'd like to attach to my name. Knowledgeable, effective, excellent. But I fear the adjectives that might get attached to my name. Especially if we're going to pick from my weaker moments. Complaining Kevin. Cynical Kevin. Impatient. Proud. Selfish. Doubting Thomas. His whole life reduced to one adjective. Doubting. 
Nothing about his boldness of leaving behind his former life and following Jesus for three years. Nothing about his future ministry of taking the gospel to the nations. Nothing even about his bold confession found right in this passage. We've reduced him to this moment of unbelief, doubting Thomas. And yet, I am thankful for his doubt. Because we, in Jesus' coming to Thomas, we have hope. We, we see Thomas move from unbelief to belief, from doubt to faith, and so it gives me hope. It gives me confidence that if, well, if Thomas could believe, that anyone can believe. Jesus shows up here in the, in the same locked room. The disciples are, again, a week later, behind locked doors for fear of what might happen to them. And so Jesus comes and confronts Thomas's doubt. When the, when the other ten apostles, they're, we're down to eleven, although we still call them the twelve, because Judas is no longer part of the twelve. The betrayer is no longer here. But when, when the other ten disciples explained to, to Thomas what had happened on that first day of the week, on that resurrection Sunday, we have seen the Lord. His response is, look at verse 25, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. And yet, I think if we're honest, we sympathize with Thomas here. This story, the, the account the disciples have just given is, is incredible. Jesus died, but we have seen the Lord. Jesus was crucified and laid in a tomb, and yet they, they say, we have seen the Lord. Because I think we, like Thomas, struggle to believe. Not just in the historical reality of the resurrection, but even, even those of us who, who are Christians, who believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, we still struggle to believe in the goodness of God. When we feel like we're behind a trap, we're behind a locked door. When we doubt the dark providences in our life, when, when things don't seem to be going well. When we hear news of death and threats to our lives. When we face difficult circumstances, we too struggle to believe. See, Thomas wants evidence for the resurrection. He knows that sometimes things are not as they seem. Sometimes the ordinary circumstances do turn out to be extraordinary. Sometimes, though, people misunderstand what they think they've seen. It makes more sense to Thomas that the other ten disciples are confused. And that makes more sense, honestly, than than the resurrection, that Jesus was dead and is now brought back to life. I mean, especially when you look at the continued actions of these other disciples, they're still in a locked room. So not all that much has changed in their lives. Nothing has changed in their circumstances. And so it makes more sense to Thomas to say, I think, they, I think they're naive. I think they misunderstand what's happening because people don't rise from the dead. Yes, Thomas, in in walking with Jesus for three years, has seen the extraordinary. 
He has seen miracles. He has even seen Jesus raise people from death to life. But what was necessary in each of those moments was Jesus. Jesus, the one who who they believed was the, the prophet sent by God. Jesus, who declared that he was the Son of God. He was there to perform the miracles. And without him, what hope could we possibly have? The disciples' story doesn't make sense. They're still in a locked room, and yet they say, we have seen the Lord. But Jesus confronts Thomas's doubt. Verse 26, we read, a week later, so we've gone from Sunday to Sunday, from the day of resurrection to now a week later, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Jesus confronts Thomas's unbelief. He has shown up in this locked room. He already knows what Thomas has said because look at Jesus's response in verse 27. He says to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, and put it into my side. Stop doubting. Jesus knows what Thomas has said. He knows he, he wasn't in the room when it was said, and somehow now he's, he's here in this locked room. Thomas's unbelief is sin. To hear the gospel message, to hear the truth from God and say, I don't want anything to do with it, is sin. It's rebellion against God. And so Jesus confronts him. Stop doubting. Now, maybe you say, well, I could believe if the evidence made sense. I mean, if God made himself known to me, if I could see it directly, then I would believe. Maybe God could write it out in a neon sign when I walk down the street. Maybe God could, could, could paint it in the sky so that I would see the truth and that then I would believe. But of course, you know, when you stop and think about it, you would, well, you'd come up with other explanations for those kinds of things. Somebody's messing with me today. I don't know who would waste this much money on this elaborate scheme, but it's pretty easily explainable. I mean, I don't know the technology, but, but somehow they got an airplane up there and they wrote that message in the sky just to mess with me. I don't know who's doing it. See, we would, we would explain it away in ordinary ways. If God showed himself directly to us, we would come up with other explanations because we know that, well, we can't even always trust ourselves. We, we sometimes misunderstand even what we see. My dad loved boating, so even long after he had sold his boat, he kept reading boating magazines. So I remember flipping through one of the magazines uh, years ago, and it offered the warnings about the bizarre sights that you see when you're out on the open ocean. It was the kind of a instructions from a wise sea captain to sort of new beginners who say, hey, let me go out and have some fun. And an experienced captain offered some, some simple examples. He says, against our most rational instincts, when out in the darkness, the, it, the moon can look like it's rapidly flying across the sky. 
When seen behind fast-moving broken clouds, it's the moon that appears to be moving, not the clouds. Your brain can't quite figure it out. I mean, you know what it should be, but, but you see something different. He also describes what, what mariners call a dancing lighthouse. He says, if you stare at a fixed point of light in complete darkness, the light will appear to move. Because of the imperceptible movements of your eye, your brain interprets that the light is moving, not that you are moving. And so he says, well, don't stare at the light. Scan the horizon, and you'll be able to see that the light is fixed. Or, or he warns that, well, your eyes need time to adjust to colors. He says, a red ship will appear closer than a blue one. But at twilight, the opposite is true. The red ship appears farther away because after your eyes have become accustomed to the dark, they're more sensitive to blue than to red. I mean, in many situations, you can't trust what you see. You actually need somebody to explain it to you. We need more than just brute facts placed in front of us because even the simple details of how we see red and blue need an explanation. And of course, that would be even more important as the facts in front of us become more significant. And so Jesus appears and confronts Thomas's unbelief. His appearance is direct evidence for Thomas, but it's also an explanation to him of what he's really seeing. It's not that the other disciples were confused. It's not that they misunderstood what they had seen. Jesus has really been raised from the dead. Jesus appears with evidence right in front of Thomas. And thankfully, we have the miracle then recorded for us and explained to us so that we gain the benefit from Thomas's sin. See, part of the reason that Thomas's story is told to us here is so that we will believe. Now we'll look in, in more detail at these verses next Sunday, but, but look at verse 31. I didn't read this far in, in John 20, but verse 31 gives us the summary that the miracles that you have read in the Gospel of John are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is told to us so that we can respond in faith, in trust, in belief. And, and Jesus says it clearly. He, he, he offers this, this explanation to Thomas. He says to him in verse 29, this is where we, we finish reading this morning, in verse 29, because you have seen me, Jesus says to Thomas, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, of course, that it, that's us who haven't seen the physical body of the resurrected Christ, but have believed because we gain what, what Thomas needed, which was evidence of the resurrection with its explanation attached. It's not that the other disciples were confused. It's that Jesus has really been raised from the dead. There is hope for us here. But not only does Jesus confront Thomas's doubt, Jesus covers Thomas's doubt. Jesus shows up in this locked room and says, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting 
and believe. Yes, there is the direct confrontation of Thomas, but there's also the reminder that Jesus is the one who covers our sins. I mean, more miraculous than a, than a Star Trek transporter, Jesus appears in this room physically, behind locked doors, which means Jesus, raised from the dead, miraculously by God's power, could have appeared perfected in glory. And yet he shows up here scarred, still with the imprints of where the nails held him to the cross, still with a visible wound in his side. Why? Why in the miracle of the resurrection are these wounds still visible? Because it is the sacrifice of Jesus that covers our sin. Think of the way the scriptures describe the death of Jesus. Isaiah prophesying about the death of the Savior says in Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so Jesus shows to Thomas the wounds that bring his healing, that cover his sin, that move him from unbelief to belief, from doubting to faith. Or think of the way that, that John, who wrote this gospel account for us, describes the ministry of Jesus in heaven. We've already sung the phrase multiple times in today's worship service, but Jesus is the lamb, the sacrifice. And in Revelation 5, verse 6, John says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Jesus, the resurrected king, still bears the wounds of his sacrifice because he is the one who paid the penalty for our sins. Jesus knows Thomas's doubts without hearing him say them out loud. Jesus wasn't in the room when he said, only then will I believe if I can touch his hands, but I will not believe it. But Jesus, the Savior, shows up because Thomas's doubts here are necessary in some sense. If Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead, then your sins have not been covered. If Jesus hasn't appeared physically, bodily, really to his disciples, then you and I are, are, are without hope. There is no sacrifice for our sins. His death on the cross is shown to be effective by the resurrection from the dead, where he is declared by the power of God to be the Lord. See, Thomas knows that for the resurrection to have meaning, it must really be connected to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And so Jesus shows up, and before he confronts Thomas's unbelief, what does he do? He offers him blessing. He pours out grace upon him. Just like he had done a week before, Jesus shows up in the locked room and says, peace be with you. And in verse 27, as he turns to Thomas, we can almost see the scene. The other disciples sort of step back. Like, we believe. But when Jesus turns to Thomas to confront his sin, he also covers his sin. He tells him directly, stop doubting 
and believe. But what does he do? He holds up his hands to show him the wounds. He points to his side and tells him, I died in your place on the cross. I am the risen Savior who covers your sins. The grace of Jesus covers Thomas's doubt. Jesus removes all possible grounds for unbelief and so gives him the warning, the command, stop doubting and the invitation and believe. See, that same grace, the peace which comes to us undeservingly from God, even in our unbelief, is offered to us right here. You are told this so that you can believe, so that you can see, you can hear Jesus today confront your doubts. You can see Jesus is the one who has covered your doubts. There is grace here today. So come to the Savior. Declare him to be the one who is your rescuer, your Savior. Jesus confronts Thomas's doubts. Jesus covers Thomas's doubts. And now Thomas confesses Jesus is Lord. See, Thomas had said, unless I touch his side, I won't believe. But he doesn't actually do it. When the Savior appears, by God's grace, he has moved from unbelief to belief. He doesn't actually walk up and, and in, in, investigate physically. He sees the risen Savior, and he, he understands that God's grace is being poured out on him in those words of peace he finds his salvation. And so Thomas confesses. In this pinnacle of John's gospel, of verse 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now you and I have been waiting for this moment, reading John's gospel. We were actually told this was the truth in the very opening verses. John announces to us that Jesus is God, with God, has always been God, made all things, and appeared so that he could be the lamb who takes away our sins. And yet, as, as we've seen the unbelief of the crowds, as we've seen the, the hatred of the religious leaders, we've been waiting for this moment. Even the, the proclamation the other disciples have made, we have seen the Lord. doesn't go as far as Thomas goes here. The, the providential delay of Thomas not being in the room. I mean, what happened? Where was he? What was he doing? on the Resurrection Sunday. Why are all of the rest of them together huddled in one locked room? I mean, did he not make it to the checkpoint in time? Everybody checked their watches and, well, Thomas isn't here. I guess we go on without him. Why wasn't he there? He wasn't there so that you and I would hear him declare, my Lord and my God. So that you and I would see him take the step of faith even further than the other 10 had already gone and declare that the one who stands in front of him is God Almighty. He is the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who died in his place, the resurrected king with the scars to prove his love to us, my Lord and my God. See, he might have been a week late in his confession, but what he says is the very truth you and I are meant to declare. Thomas doubts no more. And notice with me, in this confession, the pronouns. He doesn't say, oh Lord and God. 
He doesn't say the Lord and God. Those are both, of course, true statements. What does he say? My Lord and my God. It's a confession of trust, of personal trust that Jesus died for me. Jesus died in my place on the cross. And so when you and I get to see and hear what takes place in this room, we are given the explanation so that we might believe. We are meant to understand, yes, this is, the, this is the, the reaction we have been waiting for, the entire gospel, for somebody to see Jesus in all of his glory and to personally lay claim to it, because that's what trust in Jesus Christ is. It's setting aside everything else you might have put your hope in, your good accomplishments, spending three years following Jesus, everything you've given up for him, all your religious observance. It's saying, I can't trust in that. What do I trust in? My Lord and my God, the one who died on the cross for me. See, I'm glad that we call him Doubting Thomas because if he can believe, well, then I can believe. And you can believe. But preachers like to point out that Thomas has moved from doubter to shouter. From the one who said, I will not believe it, doubting Thomas, to the one who exclaims in the presence of Jesus, my Lord and my God. No longer is he doubting Thomas. By the grace of God, through the power of the resurrection, he is shouting Thomas. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you praise for the grace and mercy which are revealed to Thomas. Lord, we thank you that, that you did not leave him in unbelief, but you confronted his sin that you called him to turn from his sin of unbelief and to put his trust in you. And Lord, we thank you for his grace, for your grace on display in his life. That he is willing to admit his wrongs, to stop trusting in himself and put his hope in Jesus Christ alone. And so Lord, do that work in our hearts as we have heard your people sing of your, your grace, as we have seen it on display in Theo's baptism, as we have heard it in your word. Move us from doubt to faith, from unbelief to belief, that we might trust in our Savior and declare that Jesus is my Lord and my God. We pray in his name. Amen.